Hello and welcome. We are Restoration Church in beautiful Prescott, Arizona. Thank you for joining us. My name is Nate Huss and I am stoked you are tuning in to our teaching of the week. If you are new, so glad you found us. If you haven't already and would like to learn a little bit more about us, jump over to restorationaz.org. All right, let's grab our Bibles and dive into this week's teaching. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Nehemiah chapter 9. We'll read all or most of that in a minute. Uh, before that, though, I am genuinely really enjoying reading through and studying these two books. Last week, we opened up this series. We'll be in this series now for a number of weeks. Uh, but it has been very, very challenging for me to figure out how I want to map this series out. And I think I kind of finally landed on why it's been so challenging. And it's actually uh, pretty simple. And this is it. When we read the scriptures, there's two things we have to do right away. First is assess who was the authors and the, the human part of the author of this part of the scriptures. And then who was that author's audience? Who wrote it? Who were they writing to? It's really hard to understand the Bible if we don't first consider those things. And then secondly, is this portion of the scriptures descriptive or prescriptive? Meaning, is it just describing something we can learn from but not telling us to do it? Or is it prescribing it? like a prescription, and it's something that we are meant to actually do. A couple of examples. Throughout our, our nation's history, there's a terrible thing that happened, and there's lots of terrible things that happened when we mix up the descriptive or prescriptive, where people would read in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, there's not more than one, there's just one Old Testament, about slavery, and be like, God loves slavery. We're supposed to have slaves. And that's not at all what the Bible is communicating. It is describing that culture in that moment. Uh, another example would be in these two books of Ezra and Nehemiah, there's a whole lot about hair pulling. And it would be very foolish of you to go home and like Ezra and Nehemiah, if you get frustrated in a moment that someone in your life is not following the way of Jesus to just start pulling out their hair or pulling out your own hair. Ezra and Nehemiah are not saying to do that. They're just describing what these guys did. And those might be kind of larger scale now obvious examples of what not to do but all of the time when people are studying the scriptures these things get mixed up and it actually causes a significant amount of damage so for that reason we're not going to walk through Ezra and Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 1 and on through I actually think it would be pretty confusing it's better I think to actually step back and see the whole picture and then learn some very good lessons that aren't necessarily prescribed, but as they're described, we can learn what God is actually teaching us uh, in that. So that's how we're going to approach it, and we'll dive into chapter 9 in a moment. Before that, picture this with me. Picture we're six to nine months from today. It's a Sunday at 11.41 a.m., but instead of being in this room with a couple hundred people or whatever are in here, we are at the square on the grass if there's enough space, and there's thousands of people. It is packed. Gurley Street is closed, as is Montezuma and Cortez. There's no cars, shoulder to shoulder everywhere. The balconies where they are are filled. People are leaning out of windows just waiting for this moment. There's no space. There's only the sound of feet uh, kind of shuffling to get in place. And then as you look at the steps of the courthouse, all eyes are focused there, and that's the only place where it's not packed. 
the steps are empty, and at the top of the steps, there's one mic stand and one mic. And everybody's looking, and it's quiet. And eventually, as the thousands of people all there together look, one man starts to make noise as he takes the steps up, and then he walks to the mic, and he stands, and he takes this deep breath. It's like four seconds, but it feels like four minutes. And then he begins to speak, and he starts to confess. And he says, we, as Christians, have been harshly judgmental in moments that we shouldn't have been. And we have not stood for the truth with strength in moments that we should have. And everybody listens, and there's silence. And then he walks down the steps. And a little bit of time goes by, and then this woman walks up the steps, and all you hear is each step she takes, and she too walks up to that singular mic stand, and the thousands look and wait and listen for what she's going to say, and then she too confesses on behalf of all the people, and she says, we have been greedy oftentimes instead of being generous, and our doors have been closed in our homes rather than being hospitable and open to people of different political parties and ideologies and ways of thinking. And then she walks down. And someone else walks up and confesses that we as Christians have often worked really hard to look put together, but not too put together like we're trying. And that in our kind of fakeness, we've actually created this culture of loneliness because we're not willing to go to others and say, I need help. Because in our culture, we've been trained that we need to be able to handle things on our own. And there's person after person after person that comes up those steps and declares and confesses, not just for themselves, but it's an us thing. And it's actually somehow miraculously not awkward because everybody's on the same page. And there's this kind of beauty of repentance and everyone's saying, yes, we want something different. This is true. And there's songs of worship like we sang and everybody's singing and it's loud and powerful. And then there's this moment of transition after that where it gets quiet again and nobody's up top. And then someone walks up to the mic with everybody looking. And on behalf of everybody, declares and asks this question, can we be a people that do not lie and do not steal and do not cheat? And everybody together as one voice cries out, we will. And then someone comes up and says, can we be a people that understand God's character and live out the way of Jesus? And everybody together as one powerful voice says, we will. And then the next person comes along and says, can we be a people who forgive? And everybody cries out, we will. And someone else comes up and says, can we be a people committed to prayer? And everyone says, we will. And someone else says, can we be a people committed to studying the scriptures every day and everyone together as one voice, kind of with more enthusiasm, says, we will. And then lastly, someone comes up and says, can we be a people who are faithful to our families and our marriages and our businesses and our neighborhoods, but most importantly to our God. And everybody looks around and takes the moment in and then declares together, we will. Imagine that, like what if that happened right over there? It's like a three minute walk. Think about the impact, how exciting that would be. 
Think then like six months after that, what would be the, the impact in, in marriages and families and our schools and neighborhoods and businesses? What would that generosity guide and create? It would be incredible. Imagine just how substantial that moment would be for our town. Filling that square, filling those steps, that type of focus and passion, intention. We, we see something actually that substantial in Nehemiah chapter 9, everyone is in their version of their town square, confessing, repenting, reading the scriptures, worshiping, committing. I want to read parts of it in Nehemiah chapter 9. We're not going to put it on the screen. I'm going to jump around a little bit. Uh, and what we'll, we'll see is this. There's this declaration of who God is, of his character. Pay attention to that. We'll, we'll see how well they understand the scriptures. They know the scriptures back and forth. We'll see confession. We'll see commitment to the future. Pay attention to to a few of these things. We read this. On the 24th day of this month, the Israelites assembled. They were fasting, wearing sackcloth, and had put dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the guilt of their fathers. While they stood in their places, they read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a fourth of the day, and spent another fourth of the day in confession and worship of the Lord, their God. He said in verse 6, You alone are God. You created the heavens, the highest heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and the heavenly host worships you. You are Yahweh, the God who chose Abram and who brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and changed his name to Abraham. You found his heart faithful in your sight and made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites to give it to his descendants. You have kept your promise, for you are righteous. You saw the oppression of our ancestors in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea. You performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, all his officials and all the people of his land, for you knew how arrogantly they treated our ancestors. You made a name for yourself that endures to this day. You divided the sea before them and they crossed through it on dry ground. You hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into churning waters. You led them with a pillar of cloud by day and with a pillar of fire by night to illuminate the way they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke to them from heaven. You gave them impartial ordinances, reliable instructions, and good statutes and commands. You revealed your holy Sabbath to them and gave them commands and statutes and instructions through your servant Moses. You provided bread from heaven for their hunger. You brought them water from the rock for their thirst. You told them to go in and possess the land you had sworn to give them. Verse 16, but our ancestors acted arrogantly. They became stiff-necked and did not listen to your commands. They refused to listen and did not remember your wonders. They continue to walk through Israel's history of all the ways that God was faithful and they were not. Now I'm going to fast forward now to verse 30. You were patient with them for many years and your spirit warned them through your prophets, but they would not listen. Therefore, you handed them over to the surrounding peoples. However, in your abundant compassion, you did not destroy them or abandon them. For you are a gracious and compassionate God. So now our God, the great mighty And awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant. Do not view lightly all the hardships that have afflicted us. 
our kings and leaders, our priests and prophets, our ancestors and all your people, from the days of the Assyrian kings until today. You are righteous concerning all that has come on us because you have acted faithfully while we have acted wickedly. Our kings, leaders, priests, and ancestors did not obey your law or listen to your commands and warnings you gave them. When they were in their kingdom, with your abundant goodness that you gave them and in the spacious and fertile land you set before them, they would not serve you or turn from their wicked ways. Here we are today, slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so that they could enjoy its fruit and its goodness. Here we are, slaves in it. Its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and our livestock as they please. We are in great distress. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement and writing on a sealed document containing the names of our leaders, Levites, and priests, And then chapter 10 goes on with this detailed vow of what they will now go and do. And it all went really, really great for a while. And then Nehemiah left. He had to go back to work. Then he came back. And when Nehemiah came back, it had all fallen apart. All the vows, all the promises, all the spirituality, the knowledge didn't make much of an impact. Their good intentions didn't really matter, and Nehemiah comes back and goes, why? Why would you go from faithfulness to not being faithful so quickly? They knew all the right things. They wanted all the right things. They even said all the right things, but they weren't faithful leads us to something that's true for us today as well. It's something as Christians, the people of God, we're still getting caught up in and confused by, and it's this. Knowing the right stuff and having the right intentions won't lead to faithfulness. But time and time and time again, we think that knowing the right stuff and having the right intentions will lead to faithfulness. And yes, though it is maybe disappointing, I'm talking about our sacred Bible studies as well. We sit in circles and we talk about the scriptures and we memorize verses and we talk about what it would be like to go practice the way of Jesus here or there. Or we come into our buildings with our programs and our churches with our visions and we have great expectations. We know the right stuff. We have the right intentions. And yet... It doesn't lead to faithfulness. At the end of the day, faithfulness is complex. Yet so often as Christians, we think that faithfulness is simple. And when we make that mistake, we don't end up being faithful. We underestimate how hard being faithful is. We oversimplify it. We make commitments and vows with good intentions and knowledge of the scriptures and of Jesus. And then we fail. I think it's sometimes because we oversimplify it. Faithfulness was complex for the people at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, and it is for us as well. And I want to just spend a couple minutes talking about how it was actually complex for them. If we turn to uh, Nehemiah 13, 10 through 11, so they already made all these vows. They read the scriptures together. They made these faithful promises. And then Nehemiah comes back and it's all gone pretty terribly. And we we pick up in verse 10 of chapter 13. Nehemiah says this. 
I also found out that because the portions for the Levites had not been given, each of the Levites and the singers performing the service had gone back to his own field. Therefore, I rebuked the officials, saying, Why has the house of God been neglected? Nehemiah asks why, as if there's no good reason for this to happen. But there, there actually was. The Levites were dependent on the people to bring forth everything that was needed for the temple. The Levites were dependent on the people for their very own survival. And so when the people weren't faithful to what they said they were, the Levites wanted to provide for their families so their children didn't starve. They wanted to share a meal together and survive to live the next day. And so when their option was stay in the temple and not have any food or go work the field and have food for their families, they decided to go work the field and have food for their families. What initially seemed to Nehemiah, like, why in the world would you do this? Well, when we kind of look at the reasons behind it, there's some good reason for them to do what they did. Survival. Sometimes survival. Sometimes life the way we know it makes faithfulness complex. Maybe in today's culture, it's about a a job opportunity or a career move. Maybe it's about opportunities for your children if they don't go do this thing or get to experience that. Are we going to hamstring them? Sometimes opportunities lead to complexity. There's, there's a variety of things. We see other examples in the, the same chapter that have to do with marriage and kind of familial expectations and complexities. Let's look at verse 23 through 25. Same context, promised to be faithful, weren't. Nehemiah is now speaking on that. He says this, In those days I also saw Jews who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, or the language of one of the other people, but could not speak Hebrew. I rebuked them, cursed them, beat some of their men, and pulled out their hair. I forced them to take an oath before God and said, You must not give your daughters in marriage to their sons, or take their daughters as wives for your sons or for yourselves. And again... Nehemiah's going, why would you do this? This is so simple. God just totally redeemed us and brought us here, and now we have this opportunity, and then you go and mess it all up. Were you not there at the town square when we all read the scriptures and made these promises? But then if we step back again and look at the situation, when these exiles returned home, there was a whole lot more men that came home than women. And so as these young men grew up and they looked around, there was no one to marry. And so their choice was either don't get married and don't really have a life in that culture or marry the women that were there and available. And they chose that. And that doesn't sound that crazy. And that moment, faithfulness was complex. And Nehemiah went away for a while and he came back and goes, how could you do this? But it wasn't simple. We also see political complexities they faced. There, there was a time as they were rebuilding the temple that the enemies of the rebuild wrote letters to the king manipulating him to create a law that they weren't allowed to build a temple anymore. So to continue to do that meant they had to disobey the law and potentially face death or a whole spectrum of other consequences. So the question was, was it so important that they did this right now in that moment? Was it worth risking their lives? Is that what God wanted? Would God maybe speak to that king as he had spoken to so many other kings to change his mind and maybe it was a matter of waiting. It wasn't simple. It was complex. Faithfulness is often complex. Again, it was for them and it is for us today as well. 
As Christians, we're called to be in the public sphere. We're called to be a light among the nations, to be an example by the way we live and love and speak, by the way we're generous and hospitable and create and do. But things get complex. Things as simple as deciding where to send your kid to school these days. In the name of being a light and an example and a good presence in the public sphere, at what age are we okay with our kids being forcefully indoctrinated with sexual and gender ideologies opposing what God has designed? That sounds complex to me. When I grew up, there was maybe a very small handful of kids who questioned their sexuality or gender. But the reality is that today, not one of my children, my oldest is 10, will be able to avoid the questioning of their sexuality and gender. Think about that for a second. I mean that. Every single one of my kids, any of you that have kids, will have to question that. We live in a culture that questions it constantly. It's not a choice. It's presented and flooded and pushed constantly. It's a different world. As Christians, then, is the faithful response to immerse ourselves in that culture, again, to be a quote-unquote light is the faithful response to hide and protect our children from these things so they don't have to deal with it? Maybe is it a matter of understanding education and developmental stages and how the brain functions and when our kids will actually be able to interpret and handle and have conversations about these things? Biblically, the truth might be simple, but that doesn't mean that knowing what faithfulness is with that truth is simple as well. I know students at Yavapai College that have failed classes because they weren't willing to give the PC answer on gender and sexuality. There's teachers and all kinds of professionals in this room where if a, a student or a coworker or a boss approaches you because you used the wrong pronoun, what's the response? If you embrace the truth, is it your responsibility to give it in that moment? Will it make a difference anyway? Is it worth losing your job and not being able to provide for your family? Again, we might know the truth, but do we know what faithful steps and actions and words look like in that very moment? Maybe you're married to somebody that's not following Jesus. And they kind of support this whole Jesus thing, but they also have a whole set of other values that they're pursuing. That makes it complex. Or maybe you work remotely, and the organization you work for donates substantially to organizations that oppose the way of Jesus. Or maybe you're in a stage of life where your portfolio and retirement and investments are pretty important. Do you consider what all of those organizations support and do and pursue? Do you need to? Do you not? It's often not simple. We often make the mistake of thinking that the truth on one hand and faithfulness on the other hand are synonymous. The truth and knowing it and faithfulness are the same thing, and they're not. They're very much related, but knowing the truth and knowing what to do with that truth are just different things. The truth is often clear biblically, 
But how to be faithful in that very moment is very often very complex. I'll say that again when we put it on the screen. The truth is often clear biblically, yet how to be faithful in that very moment is very often very complex. It's, it's funny, too. I think as, as God's people, we have this kind of pattern and, and habit or tendency to spend way more time telling God what the truth is and what needs to happen than asking him what we should do in any given moment. What if the answer to complexity was less declaring and maybe more asking of Jesus? Jesus, I see these people. Jesus, I hear these things being said. I'm watching this being taught and I don't know what to do. I'm not saying, so don't interpret me, saying that we need to walk away from the truth or water the truth down. It's not what I'm saying in any way. What I'm saying is, while the truth is what the truth is, there's often layers of complexity surrounding it that we have to be honest about. Maybe it's about how we communicate the truth or when we communicate the truth in what way we communicate it, to whom we communicate it. What action steps should we take? Should we take those now? Should it be later? Sometimes we get into trouble, I think, when we oversimplify some of these things. Again, faithfulness is complex for the people at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, and certainly as if you're breathing, you know it is complex today. And, as we said earlier, knowing the right stuff and having the right intentions will not lead to faithfulness. Those are great things. But in and of themselves, they're not enough. I want to look at Nehemiah 10 uh, again. This is where we read in a little bit further detail this, this declaration, these intentions that they have. Listen to the pattern that I will make painfully obvious, beginning in verse 30. We read this. Here's the, the people of God speaking. We will not give our daughters in marriage to the surrounding peoples and will not take their daughters as wives for our sons. When the surrounding peoples bring merchandise or any kind of grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath day. We will also leave the land uncultivated in the seventh year and will cancel every debt. We will impose the following commands on ourselves to give an eighth of an ounce of silver yearly for the service of the house of our God, the bread displayed before the Lord, the daily grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbath and new moon offerings, the appointed festivals, the holy things, the sin offerings to atone for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. They were committed to embracing all the religious festivals. We have cast lots among the priests, Levites, and people for the donation of wood by our ancestral houses at the appointed times each year. They are to bring the wood to our God's house to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. Here we go again. We will bring the first fruits of our land and of every fruit tree to the Lord's house year by year. We will also bring the firstborn of our sons and our livestock as prescribed by the law and will bring the firstborn of our herds and flocks to the house of our God, to the priests who serve in our God's house. Verse 37, we will bring a loaf from our first batch of dough to the priests in the storerooms of the house of our God. We will also bring the first fruits of our grain offerings of every fruit tree and of the new wine and oil, a tenth of our 
land's produce belongs to the Levites, for the Levites are to collect the one-tenth offering in all our agricultural towns. A priest of Aaronic descent must accompany the Levites when they collect the tenth, and the Levites must take a tenth of this offering to the storerooms of the treasury in the house of our God. For the Israelites and the Levites are to bring the contributions of grain, new wine, and oil to the storerooms where the articles of the sanctuary are kept and where the priests who minister are along with the gatekeepers and singers. And then one final time, we will not neglect the house of our God. Three chapters later, all of those we wills sounded very foolish because they didn't stand. I want to compare that repetition, the I wills, the we wills, where they're the subject, where they do the verbs, where they're responsible for the doing, to the way Jesus teaches us to to pray in Matthew chapter 6. He's guiding his disciples on prayer. I'll begin in verse 9. Jesus says this. Therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father... In heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now we get to the implied use. You give us today our daily bread. And who does the forgiving? God. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but you deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Do you see the the difference? A whole lot of we wills. God will do this. God will do that. We will, we will, we will. And then Jesus teaches us to pray and actually prays this way. It's about God as the subject, God as the doer, God as the one that will execute the plan. But so often, maybe perhaps most, when we feel the pressure of complexity in our culture for faithfulness, we skip that step. We go, God, we have some great plans. Just help us make it happen. It's funny, even in our attempts at faithfulness, we have this tendency to always make it about us, to forget that we are a people in need of a Savior in an ongoing manner. It's not that we accept Christ and we say, thank you for the cross and for rising from the grave and you did a great job, Jesus, we can take it from here. The more mature a Christian is, the longer they've been following Jesus, the better they know him, the more aware of their dependency on him they are. Yet sometimes the more we know, the less we trust him and the more we trust ourselves because we think we've understood it. I think we need to change perhaps the way we pray, especially in these moments of complexity. Right now, my, uh, I almost just said my four-year-old, that'd be impressive. My fourth grader is coming home with homework and, and grammar and English. They're working on like diagramming and dissecting sentences and stuff and she gets all riled up about this like she's in tears the other day about how to do this and I'm like just calm down it's not that complicated let me see this paper and I read it and I'm like baby girl this isn't complicated it says very clearly here on these instructions they're not like Ikea instructions that make no sense it says place the nouns on each line given 
And then you go from there. I'm like, do you know what a noun is? She said, yes. I'm like, great, me too. This isn't that hard. We don't need to cry. We're all right. And then I read the sentence because I'm going to show her how to do this. And I read the sentence and I'm like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. There's three lines and there's four nouns. Now we're doing math. Three and four. I don't know what to do here, baby girl. You're going to have to tell your teacher that dad couldn't help you. I don't understand it like I thought I did. But I I actually think stepping back and diagramming these sentences could be helpful when it comes to how we pray. How often are you the subject? How often are you the one that the verbs belong to and now you are going to go do the right things? How often, dare I say, do we allow God to be the subject and the one responsible for the action. I think in our American culture, we have a tendency to not like that. And maybe there's, there's good reason. I mean, if I was going to hire somebody to paint my house and I said, here's the color I want, here's how I want you to do it, when I want you to do it, do you think you can do that? And they were like, I'd like to. I'm not hiring that person. They say, yes, I will. I go, great, that gives me some confidence. Or if I'm officiating a wedding and we get to the vows and I say, do you so-and-so take this person to be your lawfully wedded husband, to have and to hold for better or for worse, sickness and in health, and they go, I'd like to. Like, we should probably stop this whole thing right now and talk about that a little bit more. That's not a normal response. Yet, in the economy of our God, that's the proper response to acknowledge our weakness and in our weakness he is strong. To acknowledge that we don't know what we're doing and that we need him to lead us. To acknowledge that maybe as we study the scriptures we do know and see the truth but in this very moment it's complex and we don't know what to do with it and that's okay. I am actually suggesting maybe we change our prayers from I wills and we wills to I'd like to. That won't get you hired. But when we're following Jesus, I think it's right. God, I'd like to take this next step. It seems like it's right, but I'm not sure. Will you show me? God, I'd like to be faithful, but I'm not. Will you work in my heart first? God, I'd like to change this thing, but I don't know how. And in about 14 seconds, I probably won't want to anyway. So will you guide me? At the end of the day, we are not responsible. We are not reliable. We are not faithful. That's what Ezra and Nehemiah shows us. No matter how much of the right stuff we know, no matter how good our intentions are or how passionately we get everybody together to proclaim it, that won't lead to faithfulness. It's a heart issue. And only Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, can change that within us. So I think in the midst of complex cultural moments where we want to be faithful and where there's truth that we maybe don't know what exactly to do with in this very moment, the first step, rather than declaring something, should be prayer. And the prayer shouldn't be, hey, God, I have a great plan. Help me make it happen. It should be, God, what do I do? God, here's what I'm hearing from you, or help me hear from you. What steps do I actually take? 
next. There's a clear lesson, there's many, one of them, the one today from Ezra and Nehemiah, is that they proclaimed what they would go and faithfully do, and then they didn't do it. We shouldn't follow in those footsteps. Instead, again, I think we start with prayer and we pray like Jesus. Jesus, what is the next step? I'd like to do that. Please lead me. And then he provides a spirit. That's the biggest difference for us compared to God's people at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. He's given us his spirit whom we have access to always to be the guide and the counselor. And so in these moments of complexity, we can learn to tune in and to listen and to follow his steps rather than always creating our own. doesn't mean we water down the truth. doesn't mean we ignore the truth or neglect it. It just means we present it and let Jesus lead us with that truth. And I think we live in a cultural moment where that's desperately needed. Let's go ahead and pray. Jesus, I thank you that, as always, you are trustworthy in every single moment. Thank you that you are a God filled with grace and truth. Help us to wield the truth well. Show us the truth. Speak the truth to us and then guide us on what steps to take with it. God, may we not be filled with promises and vows, but may we be filled with your spirit to lead us in each and every moment. We look to you now. May you lead us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for tuning in to our teaching of the week. We are so grateful to partner with you in sharing the love of Jesus in a world that really deeply longs for it. And whether you're new here, seeking more information, looking for a church community, or considering financial partnership, go ahead and visit restorationaz.org for more details. Okay, let's continue making a difference together. So how do we do that? By remembering Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.